Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Aaron Wicks with Harper Audio. This week I spoke with Francine Prose, author of Lovers at the Chameleon Club, Paris 1932, which goes on sale April 22, 2014. Francine's novel is told from the shifting perspectives of multiple characters, all untrustworthy narrators who paint a picture of life in Paris from the Bohemian 1920s to the end of World War II. Through their fictional letters, memoirs, and biographies, often based on those of real historical figures, readers find entry into a world both marvelous in its glamour and fraught with contradictions as it moves into harrowing times. Francine is a talented writer of nonfiction and the author of 17 works of fiction. A National Book Award finalist, she has received numerous grants and honors, including a Guggenheim and a Fulbright. Francine, thanks for sitting down with us today. Oh, sure. You're so, so welcome. Um, one of the things I loved most about your novel is the fact that it's told from a variety of different perspectives and different forms. So you get these interesting angles on the story and also kind of see when the stories don't quite add up or, or contradict mm-hmm. each other. And I'm wondering if you would mind just breaking down each of the major characters telling the story. And I'd also really like to play a clip from the audiobook of each character. Okay. Well, let me start with the kind of easier characters first. Um, there's Gabor Tseny, who's a photographer in Paris. I mean, all of this takes place in Paris between 1924 and 1944. So he's a Hungarian photographer who's come to Paris to make his fortune and be an artist. And his sections are told in letters that he's writing back to his parents in Hungary. And um, and he's a little based on Brassai, the great photographer, and, and brought, who also wrote letters to his parents. So... Uh, like those letters, Gabor's letters are um, boasts about his talent and uh, and requests for money, thinly disguised. So and he and I find him quite charming, although an egomaniac. So he's one of the characters, and he is being supported by his patron, uh, who's a woman named the Baroness Louis de Rossignol, who's married to a. Uh, Oh, can I pause you for a second? And can we just listen to a clip from Gabor's part quickly here? Dear parents, Last night I visited a club in Montparnasse where the men dress as women and the women as men. Papa would have loved it. And Mama's face would have crinkled in that special smile she has for Papa's passion for everything French. The place is called the Chameleon Club. It's a few steps down from the street. You need a password to get in. The password is... Police! Open up! The customers find it amusing. A bar, a stage, a dance floor, leather bonquettes, tables around the edges. A typical Paris nightclub, except for the clientele. But here's the most surprising thing. The owner is Hungarian. She calls herself Yvonne. She's tall and blonde and dresses in red and has a weakness for sailors. All right, and, and I believe you were about to tell us about the Baroness. Okay, so Gabor is being supported uh, by a woman, the Baroness, Lily de Rossignol, who's very wealthy, who's a patron of the arts, who uh, is married to an auto manufacturer who makes racing cars and, sh- and luxury cars, and she's, uh, she's supporting Gabor because she believes in his art and as quickly becomes apparent in the novel is also in love with him. Through much of the 1930s, 
The Chameleon Club was my favorite night spot. I adored the clientele, the dancing, the costumes, and, for a while, the floor show. It provided a soothing antidote to the more stressful aspects of my life, among them my hopeless love for the photographer Gabor Genyi, and a possibly related rough patch in my marriage to Dani Didi de Rossignol. It also offered a brief distraction from politics, history, and from the terrifying uncertainties of the moment in which we lived. Whenever I managed to rise above my personal problems, it was hard not to notice that half of France was unemployed, that Hitler had seized power next door, that murderous gangs of extremist thugs were rampaging through our city. Then there's Gabor's girlfriend and the Baroness's rival, Suzanne, who's uh, a teacher of uh, French to foreign students in Paris. And she, as the book progresses, because it covers the time of the German occupation of Paris, she becomes a resistance heroine. Uh, and she's, in a way, the sanest character in the novel. Once a boyfriend told me, Suzanne, there are two kinds of people people who lean toward you, and people who lean away. I said, what about people who sit up straight? He said, they haven't decided. If I were like Lionel, I would write a book. Obvious lies, bad advice, and wrong information I've gotten from men. A book? An encyclopedia? But in this case, my friend was right. Gabor's baroness not only leaned away, she seemed to levitate above the table and peer down at us from a great height as we waited like naughty children until her ladyship said, Join us. For all I cared, she could have been looking at us through a telescope from Mars. There was a chance, a very good chance, that she was going to buy us dinner. Then uh, there's a woman named Yvonne who runs uh, the Chameleon Club, which is a famous, notorious club for cross-dressers in Paris, and she's uh, extremely theatrical and dramatic, also Hungarian, and she plays an important role in all the characters' lives, although you would think she was slightly in the background, but actually she's very instrumental in everything that happens. In Paris, she looked up a childhood friend named Georgie, it took her weeks to find him, partly because he'd become Georgette. Georgette said that Eva, too, must change her name. In France, she was Yvonne. Georgette knew artists, fashion designers, musicians, gangsters, people with shadowy pasts and mysterious new fortunes. Very modern, very free, very fond of dressing as the opposite sex. They needed a place where they could relax and have fun. Yvonne's club was an instant hit. Georgette gave Yvonne her first lizard, which not only provided the name for her club, but also everything she needed. The transfixed love of a duckling, the sandpaper touch of a man. Then Lionel Maine, uh, an American writer very loosely based on Henry Miller, who's expatriate, life lover, another egomaniac, writing a memoir novel about his uh, time in Paris, wine, women, song, poetry, etc. Um, a big personality. Among the demons that taunt a writer 
before he can open a vein and write in his own blood, are the devils that whisper, are you brave enough to tell the truth? Crazy enough to reveal the magic secret that will lose its power if even one other person finds out. Let's say you have discovered a cure for the garden variety psychic ills that plague mankind. Guilt, anxiety, envy, dread, and above all, self-pity. And let's say the cure is Paris. Let's say you put this discovery in a book that, by some miracle, is read by millions worldwide. And some fraction of its readers decide to do what you did. Sell everything, cut every tie, move to Paris with nothing but a good pair of walking shoes and the will to survive on cigarette smoke, wine, sex, music, poetry, and moonlight on the Seine. Pretty soon you can't turn a corner without running into a crowd of Americans who have followed you here under the illusion that the City of Light is an asylum for Cincinnati neurotics. And finally, <laughs> there's the woman who's at the center of the novel. Um, her name in the novel is Lou Villar. She's a uh, professional athlete, a auto racer. She goes to work for the Baroness Racing Cars, a cross-dresser. And uh, when the French government takes away her license for being a cross-dresser, her license to compete professionally as an athlete, she becomes a German spy. And how is her perspective told? Oh, she was the most difficult to write because she was so sweet and innocent and then becomes so evil. And, uh, and it was very hard to do, and I finally realized that the way to do it was to write a kind of pseudobiography of, of Lou written from the point of view or written by a French high school teacher, extremely neurotic. Um, a friend of mine said uh, that when you read her part, you can kind of see the nicotine stains between her fingers. And, um, and she, the story, Lou's story is a very difficult one to tell. So her biographer, Natalie, the darker the story gets and the more complicated, the more Natalie begins to talk about herself and her own problems, which become uh, mixed in with, with Lou's story. And we'll finish up with a clip from, uh, from Natalie mm -hmm. and then talk more about the novel. And Natalie's biography is called The Devil Drives. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> so good. <laughs> and also it was fun. I mean, it was fun to write Natalie's part because... She's not the best writer. I mean, you know, she's pretty good at some points and not so good at others. And, and it's always huge fun to write badly on purpose as opposed to accidentally when you can't help it. I first heard the name of Louisiane Villard whispered when I was a girl, visiting my great-aunt Suzanne Dunois, the wife and later the widow of the photographer Gabor Jenny. I remember hearing Lou's name and feeling a chill as if the winter wind had blown open the door of my great-aunt's enviable Paris apartment, an old-fashioned artist's studio with whitewashed walls, leaded windows, and a collection of modernist chairs that guests, especially children, were forbidden to sit on. For many years, all I knew was that Louvilla was the woman in a man's tuxedo in Gabor Jenny's photograph, Lovers at the Chameleon Club, Paris, 1932. Doubtless my readers are familiar with the portrait of the lesbian couple. 
the pretty girl in the sparkly gown sitting beside her broad-shouldered lover with pomaded hair and a man's pinky ring on her finger. Both stare into the middle distance with unfocused expressions, unreadable, or so I thought, until I began my labors on this book. I actually kind of do want to start with Natalie and the origin of the novel, because I mm -hmm. heard that it actually started as you writing a biography, and I was wondering if you could tell a little bit more about how it morphed into fiction, why you decided it, it needed to be fiction and where it started. Uh -huh. Well, uh, the book started really with a brass-eye photograph. There's a very famous uh, photo, iconic photo, uh, called Lesbian Couple in Luminoco, 1932, and it's two women sitting in a bar at a table, and one's wear is very pretty and wearing a kind of spangly evening dress, and the other is dressed in a tuxedo, super butch, short haircut. And uh, I saw I knew the photo, but then I saw it in a, an exhibit of Brassai's work, and there was a little wall text, and it said that the woman in the photograph the in the tuxedo was a real woman, of course, named Violette Morris, and she'd been uh, she'd gone to work for the Gestapo in Paris and was assassinated by the resistance in 1944. And I thought, really? And I went and looked online, and within moments, I'd found her biography, which was incredible. And, and there were certain points in common with what turned into the novel. She was an athlete. She was a cross-dresser. She was a race car driver. There are these extraordinary photos of her, news photos that you can find online. And, and I thought, it's such a crazy story. You know, you can't make this stuff up. So I thought I would do it as nonfiction, and then my then French editor said, well, you know, the French are so sensitive about their collaboration history, you're going to have to spend two years in the Bibliothèque Nationale doing research, and I thought, I don't want to do that. So I decided to write it as a novel, and it was much more fun. And, you know, being able to write uh, a scene, well, the Berlin Olympics, the 1936 Berlin Olympics, from the point of view of this furious crossdresser who is a French patriot but has come to hate France and adore Hitler was just a weird amount of fun, which I wouldn't have had if I was writing it as nonfiction. It, and it's done to, to great effect, but one of the reasons it, it is so great is that clearly you've done a ton of research because it, you paint really vivid scenes of Paris in the 20s and 30s and 40s. So what sort of research did you do to get yourself in that world? I read a lot of books. I forgot most of what I read. Uh, I watched a lot of films. I mean, there's, you know, I had to watch uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's documentary about the Berlin Olympics, the most boring movie ever made, but I needed to see exactly what the different uh, teams from the different countries were wearing as they passed by the reviewing stand. I mean, it seemed important to me. And, and I needed to get things right. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't want it to be a historical novel of the sort where like you know what everybody's shoelaces look like. I mean, I wanted it to be a character-driven novel. I mean, I think of it as a, as a contemporary novel that just happens to be set in the past. So I, I did just as much research as I needed to get everything right, the dates right, what happened when. Um, I actually needed to put together a whiteboard so I could chart the characters' ages because it covers 20 years, you know, and I kept losing track. And, and also it was very hard to write because... Uh, because, as you said, so many of the characters have different versions of events. I mean, the fact is, if, what do I want to say? If people are in love with people and aren't in love with other people, et cetera, et cetera, 
right there, that's a difference in the perception of reality. So I had to kind of keep correcting it and, and keep track of, of my sense of what actually happened. And how did you do that? Did you kind of have an idea of this is what happened and then map everyone's perspectives around that? Or was it more organic than that? It was more organic, but it was also, I probably should have done that because I kept losing track. So I kept having to do it over and over and, and reminding myself. And, and also because the characters, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, they really start to live in your mind. And, and they're all, or at least they were all to me, very persuasive. So they kept persuading me that, that their version was the true version. And then I would think, wait a second, this didn't actually happen. I mean, it didn't actually happen in my imagination in the novel. So then I would have to go back and kind of fix things to make it clear to me what really did happen and what didn't. And how did you decide who needed voices? Who And, and it, what way you should tell their voice, whether through a letter, through someone's journals, through the, the third person? Well, it started with one of Gabor's letters. I mean, that's the, how the novel begins, and that's actually how the novel began. Uh... Lou was the hardest. I mean, I tried it every way. I tried it first person, I tried it third person, I tried letters, and it wasn't until I hit on the idea of the biography that it actually worked, and then it just flowed after that. But, but because my problems with her character became the biographer's problems. You know, I could just, <laughs> I could just pass them off on the biographer, and I, I didn't have to worry about it. But um, at the beginning, well, you know, the novel was originally much longer than it is because I had some idea in my head that everyone had to take turns, that there had to be a kind of direct rotation. And it, and it was unnecessary. I mean, it just made it longer than it had to be in repetition. So, so then I just kept cutting it back to what actually had to be there to tell the story. And they're all written documents. I mean, except for Yvonne, the nightclub owner, everyone is writing some sort of memoir or letters or a novel. And, uh, and that made it fun and complicated, too, because because when each one is writing, each one has a sort of audience in mind, a different audience. So I had to not only keep track of who was writing, what his or her version was, but who each one thought they were writing to. So it was wildly complicated. I mean, I still can't believe I did it because, you know, it was hard. Now I'm really curious, how long did it take you to write Five this? Years. Wow. <laughs> and and five that. years of which I spent three years saying, I can't do this, this is too hard. And then finally, I don't know, one crazy summer, it just all came together, and uh, and I thought, oh, I can do this. What about the other characters that were inspired by real-life people? Um, you mentioned Henry Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just go into that a little bit more? Well, Henry, uh, Henry Miller was the inspiration, sort of, for Lionel Maine, and, and Brassai and Gabor have a connection, and... Uh, and Lou Villar and Violet Morris, and then the others are composites. I mean, um, there's a slight element of Peggy Guggenheim in the Baroness, but but it, she's quite different. I mean, she's French and not American. And then, um, well, Suzanne, for example. I mean, I read a lot of books about the Resistance, the French Resistance, and and watched documentaries about the Resistance. So she's sort of a composite of a number of characters. Uh, resistance heroines, really. And then Summer just completely made up. I mean, it, it was very hard to find out very much about um, the club that the Chameleon Club is based on, which was actually Le Monocle. But, uh, so I just had to make up Yvonne and uh, 
uh, makeup. I mean, that was huge fun because I made her up and then I made up the routines that the dancers do in the club and the orchestra and the choreographer and all these people who were kind of satellites uh, connected with the club. That's brilliant. It was, it was so believable, such a real world. I assumed that you had a very detailed description of what a club <laughs> no. was like that. But you can find, you know, it's amazing what you can find online. I mean, there mm -hmm. are pictures of nightclubs in Paris in the 20s and 30s. And then, uh, and then there's actual footage. I mean, there's a scene in the novel that's the last, the last public guillotine execution in France in the late 30s. And, uh, you can watch it online. I mean, I don't suggest you do it. It's really unpleasant. And there's a reason why it was the last one. But it's there. You can watch it. And there's footage of driving down a French country road from the point of view of the driver in the 1920s. And you're just watching the French countryside go by you. It's fantastic. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents. Today we spoke with Francine Prose, author of Lovers at the Chameleon Club, Paris 1932 and listen to excerpts from the audiobook performed by Rosalind Ashford, Eduardo Ballerini, Niccolo Barber, Jeffrey Cantor, Maggie Meg Reed, and Suzanne Torin. Join us again, and thank you for listening.